morning as we continue in Acts chapter 13. It's been a few weeks since we have looked at this. Um, I believe this was the week before we went to Washington. And then last week we had Brother Brubaker with us. And so we started looking at continuing in the grace of God, Acts chapter 13, verses 42 and 43. As we can go through a study looking at things that God has commanded us to continue in, we've seen we're continuing things we have learned, continue in the Word, continue in the love of Christ, and we started looking at continuing in grace. Acts chapter 13, verses 42 and 43, the Word of God tells us, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So what is grace? Who remembers? A definition of grace. Unmerited favor. Webster defines grace as favor, goodwill, kindness, disposition to oblige another, he has the theological definition, it says, Appropriately, the free, unmerited love and favor of God, the spring and source of all benefits men receive from Him. Grace, unmerited favor. Then to say that the sacraments are a means of grace would be a slap in the face of God, would it not? Because they are by works, which means I'm earning the grace. There's nothing I can do to earn the grace of God. So as we started this, we have 11 points we're trying to see about grace, or 11 attributes of grace. The first one was the source of grace, which is obviously God, right? We saw Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. We talked about the throne of grace, how we're to come boldly to the throne of grace. Then we saw, secondly, grace saves Aren't you glad for that? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I am glad I'm saved by the grace of God. I am glad the work was done by Jesus Christ, that there was nothing I could do or needed to do to add to it because it was finished, it is finished, that I just had to put my faith and trust in Christ alone. And it's solely by the grace of God. So the same way in which I was saved, I am kept by the grace of God. So it's not up to me to keep myself saved. So grace saves. It's not by keeping of the law, because I know I've broken it. The third point we examined was grace is superior to sin. Romans 5, 20 and 21, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but when, when sin abounded, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. I am thankful it doesn't matter how vile the sinner, God's grace is greater. I am thankful that the sin of my past is gone. Yet, you and I will still deal with those that will say, I'm too bad to be saved. There's no way God could love me. There's no way God could save me. You know, while I feel sorry for that individual, I love to be able to tell them 
I have great news for you. There is no way you can be bad enough that he can't save you. He's already demonstrated his love and he's already provided the way of salvation for you. Isn't that wonderful to be able to try to give them that hope? Now, whether they accept it or not, I just love the opportunity to be able to share with such great hope that the grace of God is so much superior than your sin. Number four, we saw that the grace of God sets free from the power of sin. You and I once were in bondage to sin, but no longer you and I can have victory through Jesus Christ. Christian, you and I do not have an excuse to sin. We have been set free from the power of sin by the grace of God. Then number five, we examine that grace provides security. The assurance of our salvation is possible through the grace of God. And I am thankful that eternal security is taught throughout all the Scripture, aren't you? I have some uh, <clears throat> pastor friend acquaintances who are free will Baptists. I know of one in particular in New Bern, great, great guy, but I don't understand how he can stand in front of his congregation and tell him you can't have eternal security. By the way, what we need to do is to pray for those in those churches. I know several good independent Baptist preachers today who used to be free will Baptist. But somebody sat down with them and showed them Scripture and showed them how God does provide eternal security. And because many of them truly want to understand the Scriptures correctly, when you show it to them, they will eventually understand and say, hey, you know what, you are right. And then they rejoice in the fact that they don't have to sit there and worry, did I send my way out of salvation? They can hold on to eternal security. Isn't that again wonderful about the grace of God? The comfort that it gives? Isn't it a comfort knowing that when you die, you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven? Now think of this. The grace of God provides all this. It provides the victory over sin. It's superior to my sin. It saves me. It provides security. Well, we could stop there, and that would be enough said about grace, wouldn't it? But that's only five, and I told you there's 11, so let's go to point number six. And for this, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be both glory, both now and forever. Amen. We're commanded to grow in grace and knowledge. Here's what I have observed. Many times people grow in knowledge, but they're not growing in grace. What does that tend to make of an individual? When they grow in knowledge of God, but not the grace of God. It makes them very proud. I watched when I was in college, many a freshman come in who were eager to learn but after their freshman year, sometimes halfway through their sophomore year, they had so much knowledge all of a sudden that they were going to start correcting the professors. It was a sad yet humorous time watching these 20-some-year-olds talking to men in their 50s and 60s, telling them how that they understand ministry better than they do when this 60-year-old man served in ministry for 30, 40 years. It was really sad and humorous at the same time. I think you understand what I'm saying. It's sad because this young man has no idea how foolish he looks 
And it's humorous because he's sitting there trying to correct the man who gave his life to ministry. But we need to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, what did you know about Christ at the moment you were saved? Well, it depends. It depends on how many times you heard the scripture. It depends if you had a church background or not. You know, I guarantee, though, you probably know more about the Bible now than you did then. You know more about Jesus Christ now than you did then. What did you know about the grace of God then? Well, I don't know. Again, depending on your background, some of you may have understood how gracious a God we serve, but I'll tell you, at the point of salvation, everybody understood that they were a hell-deserving sinner who deserved an eternity separated from God, but God loved them enough to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for him. And you understood that the grace of God would allow you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he would forgive you your sins, and you would have eternal life. Now, you may not have understood at that moment that that meant being adopted into his family. It meant that he put the righteousness of Christ on you, that he sees you as righteous as he sees Christ. It may, you may not have understood that at that moment, you were completely redeemed, you were washed. You may not have understood all these things that came with it. You may not have understood about the grace of God that's going to help you day by day, that's going to help you grow closer to Christ, that's going to give you victory over sin. You may not have understood that God is going to give a special grace at that time when it's, when it's your time to die. He's going to give you the great dying grace at that moment. You didn't understand all these things about the grace of God. So you're growing in the grace of God, right? But as I grow in the grace of God and I understand his graciousness to me, should that not help me grow more gracious to others? And this is why Peter says grow in the grace and knowledge, because you can't have one without the other. If you try to take the knowledge without the grace, you become very arrogant and prideful because you're not learning how to be gracious. Think about it. Our Savior, when he walked this earth, had all knowledge. But he also had all grace. And we, as sinful creatures, if we're walking in the flesh, will lose that balance real fast. This is why it's important we're walking in the Spirit so that we can have the grace of God in and through us. So you and I need to stop sometimes and just meditate on the grace of God. Because the point is, is that grace sanctifies. Now, what is sanctification? Set apart? There's actually three parts of our sanctification. At the moment I was saved, the righteousness of Christ was imputed on my account. And my sin was placed on Christ. So God sees me as righteous as he sees Jesus Christ. You believe that? That's a wonderful thought. That's my positional sanctification, right? Then I have my practical sanctification. Because I still have the old sinful nature, I have to die daily. I have to submit myself to the Holy Spirit of God to be yielded to him, allow him to have control of my life so that I can grow more like Christ day by day. I'm should, I should be more Christ-like today than what I was a year ago. And every one of us should be able to see in our life that progressive sanctification that will last a lifetime being more Christ-like. But I'm glad there's one more part of our sanctification, and that is the perfected sanctification. That is when that trumpet will sound, 
I will put off this mortal body. I will put on immortality. So my positional and my practical will be the same. And I will be standing before God righteous. But understand something. It's still not my own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to me. And so the one we have to work on every day is that practical sanctification. I should be more Christ-like today than what I was yesterday. And if you're not growing, Christian, there truly is no excuse why you shouldn't be growing. Now, I understand every one of us is a different position or a different place in our growth. Some have been saved a long time and should be further along in their growth than those that have not been saved a long time. Some lived a life backsliding, and, and it ta- you, know, you can be restored, but then you have some habits and things that you've acquired along the way that you need to get victory over. I understand that, but the truth is, is we need to be having those victories and not having excuses, well, it's just the way I am. Well, you're right. It is the way your flesh is. But are you going to choose to live in the flesh, or are you going to choose to live in the Spirit? Are you going to be controlled by yourself, Are you going to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God? Because that is the difference between continuing in status quo, if you will, and not growing, or growing in grace, growing in your sanctification, and being more Christ-like. You know, God has to take everything that doesn't look like Jesus Christ and cut it off of us. And sometimes that hurts, doesn't it? When the Holy Spirit of God points out something in your life, whether it be pride, whether it be bitterness, whether it be a gossiping tongue, whatever it might be, when he points it out, sometimes it's like, well, that hurts. But let's understand when the Holy Spirit's pointing it out to us, he's doing it so that we can get it corrected and we can be more Christ-like. So let's deal with the issue and continue to grow in grace. Now, I've heard some say, you know, I've tried studying the Bible every day, and then I fail. And, you know, I may end up um, only studying my Bible one, um, one day a week, two days a week, whatever. Well, let me ask you something. If you were to take and learn and apply three principles from the Bible every week, how would that help you grow? Well, that would be... 12 things in a month. That'd be 153 things in a year. 3,120 different lessons you would have learned or applied in a matter of 20 years. My point being this is, yes, it's a daily process. Yes, we all fail. Yes, we all struggle. But don't give up. Get up and go again. Do it again. You know, when I talk to parents about having a family... um, quiet time or devotional time or family altar time or whatever you want to call it, a time when you study the Word of God with your family, if you were to sit and emphasize one principle for a whole week with your children, in a year, that would be 52 things that they didn't know before or have applied before. You see, we sometimes try to complicate this matter. Let's understand children learn by repetition, right? So to give them one lesson and think, okay, they got it, that's not going to work. By the way, adults learn by repetition too. So if you take in your family, um, family devotional time, I got some books that some of the parents here have borrowed, uh, character sketches. 
and it takes a, a character trait, and it talks about an animal in nature that maybe exhibits this character trait, and then it gives a Bible lesson with it, and it gives some history with it and whatnot, and it's not designed to do all in one sit- sitting. And I tell parents, look, take this and try to break it out over maybe a whole week and just get that one principle taught to your kids. But the fact that you're reinforcing it day after day, they're going to learn it, and it's going to stick a lot better than just trying to, okay, here's your lesson for today. And by the way, don't make family time in the Word of God boring. It should be exciting. I remember when Pastor Surrett was here a few years ago for one of couples conferences, he said when his kids were growing up, sometimes they'd take different Bible stories and they would act it out. And so he had a large family, so he's able to do this with some of the stories. You know, he'd assign each kid a position or a role in it, and then they would just act it out as they're reading the scripture because it made it more real to them. In your personal study, How many times have you come across a word and say, I wonder what that word means? Well, did you actually stop and get a dictionary, or today Google it, and find out what it means? And I've given some helps before that you can use, you can find where that word is used elsewhere in Scripture, find out how else it's used, and give you a better understanding. When God teaches you something in the Word of God, do you meditate on it throughout the day or do you just forget about it? These are ways that we can grow. As God is showing His grace, manifesting His grace to you every day, are you paying attention and seeing it and thanking Him for it? When you see the devastation in Ukraine, do you thank God for His grace in our nation? When we talk about areas of our country and around the world that don't have a gospel witness. Are you thankful that God has put a church here in Havelock, North Carolina? His grace that did. You see what I'm saying, folks? We've got to recognize the grace of God because growing in grace also gives us a thankful heart. And we live in a society that I deserve it. Look what that has gotten us. Angry people who get upset over the craziest things and people wanting to fight over nonsense, we live in a very thankless society. All right, let's move on to number seven. And for this one, let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this one is an exciting one that every one of us needs to continue to learn throughout our lives. And that is the fact that God's grace is sufficient. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 7, Paul writes, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations that was given to me, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He says it twice in case you didn't get it. God gave him this infirmity. Now, some say it was his eyes. Some say it was whatever. You know what it is? It's a thorn in the flesh. And whatever it was, it troubled Paul enough that he asked for it to be removed. So let's read in verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. But get verse 9. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, here's the problem I see way too often today. When somebody has an infirmity, oh God, I've been serving you. How dare you do this to me? But Lord, I'm trying to do the right thing. Why should I have to suffer? Well, why did Job have to suffer? You know, in my personal time in the Word, I'm reading through the book of Job. Every time I read that book, I am so thankful I don't have those three friends. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but you know, what did Job do to deserve what he got? The Bible makes it very clear. Nothing. It was Satan challenging God, saying, Job only serves you because you protect him. And God says, okay, take everything he has, just don't touch him. And when that doesn't work, Satan comes back. He goes, you know, a man would give anything for his life. And God says, okay, basically do anything you want, but kill him. So here Job is miserable, lost everything, lost his health, can't sleep, can't stay awake, can't do anything. And the poor man... But he never cursed God. Now, did he curse the day he was born? Yeah, that's pretty obvious throughout the passage, right? He's like, you know, it would have been better if I weren't born. Now, if you were sitting in that condition and that thought didn't cross your mind, there's something wrong with you, okay? <laughs> but the point being is God's grace sustained Job. And by the way, when we get to the end of the book and God asks all those rhetorical questions, do we ever see where God revealed to Job the conversation between he and Satan? As far as we know, I don't know who wrote the book, okay? But unless it was Job himself who wrote the book, he never knew that conversation between God and Satan. Very interesting. So here the apostle Paul is, and he says twice, because of all that was revealed to him, God gave him this thorn in the flesh that Paul would not do what? Be lifted up in pride. Now, that shows me something. The Apostle Paul was a man like you and I. And because of the abundance of revelation given to Paul, you know what Paul's natural human tendency would be? Look at how God has used me. I must be somebody pretty important over here. Now, that may be hard to understand when we see Paul constantly going back to, I am chief among sinners. I'm the one who persecuted the church. But I believe God gave Paul this thorn in the flesh. Whatever the thorn in the flesh is, he gave it to him to remind him, Paul, it's me who did it, not you. You're nobody. Now, God doesn't treat us like a nobody. I'm glad of that. But you understand what I mean when I say we're nobody, okay? He's everything. And in comparison to him, I am nothing. Yet he loved me. So that makes me something. I don't understand why, but he loves me. And because of this thorn in the flesh, Paul says, Lord, if possible, he asked three times, if possible, remove this. But the answer was not, okay, Paul, I'll take it away. But rather, my grace is sufficient for you. I'll give you the grace to carry this burden, Paul. 
I'll give you the grace to endure the pain. I'll give you the grace, whatever it might be that this thorn in the flesh was. Paul, I'm going to give you the grace to handle it, but I cannot remove it from you because, Paul, your flesh will take over and you'll become prideful. And this is a reminder, Paul, but I'm not going to leave you alone with it. I'll give you my grace to sustain you. And so Paul, once he finally grasped this, says then I'm going to rejoice in my infirmities. I'm going to rejoice in persecution. I'm going to rejoice in these things. And Christian, that is what you and I need to understand is when God allows these things in our lives, he's going to give us the grace to go through it, to endure it, because he understands it is what's best. Has he not promised that there is nothing that he's going to allow in your life which is not the best for you? then that means if he gives you an infirmity, that is what's best for you. If he allows you to be persecuted, that is what's best for you. But I am so thankful that what this passage is teaching is that he doesn't set you into the fire and leave you alone. But as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fire, and King Nebuchadnezzar looks in, he goes, wait a minute, we threw three in there. There's a fourth one running around, and he has the appearance of the Son of God, that God says, I'm going to be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, and I'm going to give you the sustaining grace you need in all situations of life. That is a great comfort. You know what that means? That means if persecution were were to come to the United States of America and they were to persecute the church, that you and I, Christian, can say, at that moment, God will give me the grace I need. Now, we might question, what would I do if the government were to bust in here and say, deny Christ or lose your life? Be jailed, be tortured, whatever. We might question it, but you know, if we're walking with God, we don't have to question, and here's why. Because if I trust him, he will give the grace when needed. Now, I don't have that grace now. You know why? I don't need it. It's like I mentioned earlier. I don't have dying grace right now. You know why? I'm not dying. Well, we all are, but, you know, not that close enough that I need that special grace for that, right? How many of you have been in a situation in life, and I know many of you have, whether it be an illness, whether it be a trial, whether it be uh, a loved one got hurt or something like that, and all of a sudden there was a comfort, there was a grace, there was something there that wasn't there before, but it was there when you needed it. That, my friend, is the sustaining grace of God. And I've experienced it many times in my life. And let me tell you something. It should encourage each of us, once we've experienced, to understand no matter what comes in life, God's grace is sufficient. No matter what comes, God's grace is sufficient. Number eight. Let's turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, Thou therefore, my son, be strong and the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Another point about grace, grace strengthens. Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my beloved, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The Christian life is filled with battles. And we have three enemies. We have the world. That's not the people of the world. That's the world system. 
The world system is our enemy. The world system that teaches the human life has no value. The world system that teaches that, you know, whales have more value than a baby does. That living in immorality is normal. That marriage is archaic. All these things that our world system teaches, self-indulgence, are our enemy. The world, the flesh. My old nature, my sinful nature is my enemy. And I need to remember that. You know, Satan gets blamed for a lot of things he doesn't do. Sometimes it's just the lust of the flesh and our old man desiring to act like the old man. And if we're not careful, the old man can take control real easily. But we need to remember the flesh is our enemy. The world, the flesh, and obviously the devil. But we have the sustaining grace, but we also have the strengthening grace to help us in the battle. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Now, you know the interesting thing about the army of the Lord? It is the only army that you win by surrender. You say, what in the world are you talking about, preacher? I win in the army of the Lord as I surrender to God. And that is the only way to victory. He will strengthen me. When I realize I can't, he can. When I realize I need his armor, I need the Holy Spirit controlling me. I need his grace. I need his strength. I yield myself to him. He gives me, equips me to be able to stand for him. And so this men really goes against our nature as men because we never want to surrender. But the truth is, in the Christian life, the only way to victory is through surrender. Surrender to Christ. Surrender to him. As Paul said, I die daily. Paul says the life he lives is not his own. He's, it's Christ living in him. That's the way it should be, as we are yielding to Christ daily, allowing the Holy Spirit of God to have control in our lives. And as we do, he strengthens us for the battle. He gives us the courage. He gives us the strength. And by the way, the same is true in proclaiming the truth and proclaiming the word of God and sharing the gospel with others is that I submit to God, allow him to give me the strength to do so, and he will. He'll give me the boldness to speak. The Holy Spirit will guide us in what to say. We've got to get flesh out of the way. Remember, the flesh is the enemy. Be spirit-controlled. Again, that's why I say surrendering to him. Instead of surrendering to the flesh, we surrender to the spirit. And once he has control, he's going to give us his strength because, okay, so the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, right, believer? Does not God have all power, all strength, all wisdom? And so if he is in us and we yield to him, then do we not have at our disposal all strength, all power? but it's only by submitting to him. And you know the beauty of that is when we realize that and we submit to him, then we're not going to take the glory for it because we understand in me is no good thing. In this flesh is nothing good. And the only good that ever comes out is Christ in me. 
and we understand it's him doing it through me, therefore we will give him the glory for it. And this, by the way, I believe is one way in which you can see very quickly false ministers, false preachers, is when they want the glory for it, and they're talking about, oh, what we did, I did, me, 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 I, me. There's no God in that. But when it's God did this. You know, it's amazing. God uses me in spite of myself sometimes. Well, this change just turned into part three. So we're going to stop there. And by the way, these 11 things about grace probably are not exhaustive because you know why? The grace of God can't be measured. But I am thankful for these that we have covered that God's grace, the source of God's grace is God himself, that it saves, it's superior to sin, it sets free from the power of sin, it provides security, God's grace sanctifies, it is sufficient, and it strengthens. Lord willing, next Sunday morning we will look at the last three points on my outline. And perhaps, maybe you'll think of more areas or ways in which grace, attributes of grace, what I'm trying to say. And if we have time next week, maybe we'll let you share those as well. But the important thing, Christian, going back what we started with is continue in the grace of God. Dwell, remain, be at home in the grace of God. That's why I'm taking the time to talk about these different attributes because I want you to feel at home. And I'll tell you, in preparing this and preaching this, it just overwhelms me, the grace of God. And when we dwell there, the comfort, the strength, the wisdom, the peace, that it gives. So let's dwell in the grace of God.